lot of people think of the World Marathon Challenge as really, really hard. But, and I don't want to sound arrogant by saying this, but it wasn't as hard as what everybody thinks it, it was. And the reason why I say that is because with the World Marathon Challenge, there was a finish line. And with my disability, there's no finish line. Hello and welcome to episode three of the Life Well Lived podcast with me, Shane Breslin. The whole ethos of this show is conversations about navigating the challenges of life, being our best selves in the world, and ultimately how to be happy, which I firmly believe is the whole point of life and living a life well lived. My guest this week has found her way past incredible challenges in life, including discovering her congenital eyesight problems at the age of just four, which means she only sees certain colours and brightness. Her disability might mean Sinead Kane is legally blind, but she was not going to let that hold her back from a fulfilled life. In this episode, we talk about her phenomenal and still young life in which she has qualified as a solicitor, achieved a PhD from the Anti-Bullying Centre at Dublin City University, and taken up extreme distance running, including the World Marathon Challenge in 2017 when she ran in minus 30 degrees in Antarctica and plus 39 in Dubai as part of a seven marathon challenge on seven continents in just seven days, all with her guide runner John O'Regan alongside. Sinead also talks about the gift of self-acceptance, looking out for real role models in life and the power of personal leadership. I really hope you enjoy this episode of the Life Well Lived podcast and if you do, please, please, please help me spread the word take a screenshot and post it on facebook or twitter or instagram or tell your friends the old school way next time you meet them now on to the show and blind extreme athlete Sinead Kane. Sinead Kane, thanks very much for taking the time uh, I'm, I'm honored and privileged to be spending some time with you today talking and about your story and hearing a little bit about, about more about you um i've watched and heard some of your talks and i you talk about when you kind of first became aware uh, or first really knew about your own visual impairment um, take me back to when you were four years of age and what, how, that, how that panned out. Yeah, so I was in the sitting room and I was fighting with my sister to be able to see the TV screen. We wanted to watch a cartoon. The two of us are visually impaired. I come from a family of visually impaired. We're all visually impaired. Myself, my sister, my dad and my mother. And um, I suppose I leant in too close to the TV screen to be able to see it and I got a static shock. I fell backwards, started crying said to my parents why do I have to look at things up so close and I suppose in trying to comfort me they were trying to comfort me in one way but in another way they were saying to me well look this is the way it's always going to be you have to get on with it um, and I suppose they were just trying to teach me strategies in a very simplistic way to learn about myself to be self-acceptance of myself um, and to love myself and and just basically appreciate myself so that's kind of really when I kind of really started noticing that I had a visual impairment up to that point, really, I just thought that 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 was just normal type of thing. Like, mm. and and so at at that age, you're you're then preparing for school. You mentioned that you're that that um, a number of members of your family are also visually impaired. Yeah. Without going into the kind of any of the specifics of that, like what what was it like growing up? In both at home and at school with uh, with your visual impairment? Well, in my home, like everything had to be really, really organised and it just had to be that way because otherwise people be falling over things. Um, I remember it was happy household because there was guide dogs in our household um, and like we had a guide dog and then I also had a poodle as a pet and we didn't have to train our poodle because the poodle just copied everything the guide dog did. So um, that was like free training for us and um, that was great. And I suppose kind of it just, um, it was a happy household, but it was also a very household of just having to have everything planned, organized and things that people take for granted, getting up in the morning, looking out to figure out whether it's raining or not, for maybe me to figure out whether it was raining, I'd have to go outside to actually feel if it was raining. Um, simple things such as boiling the kettle to make a cup of tea, I've often poured boiled water over my hand a lot of the time. Um, a lot of people take that type of a simple task for granted, um, so I had to kind of be very careful the way I made the tea and um, try to be adaptable in trying to do that. So, um, yeah, and then I suppose as well, it was just kind of 
trying to figure out ways of sort out clothes to be like I suppose with my vision impairment I go a lot by colours and shapes um, I don't see depth like so there might be two steps but I only kind of see one or like there's a lot of shaking so if I come to steps because I've nystagmus things shake so it's like the steps are shaking or if I look up at the lights here in the room um, there's a lot of rays coming out of the lights um, because I've aniridia, coloboma, nystagmus and glaucoma so aniridia is you take in too much light a lot of people think about blindness as in darkness they don't actually consider that blindness can kind of mean whiteness as well so for me I take in a lot of light with the aniridia um, and if you can try and imagine snow blindness that type of a thing um, coloboma is a part missing of the eye the part missing of my eye is my iris that's the coloured part of your eye um, it's coloured part of your eye that forms the light going through your pupil so if you like if you t- I, don't, I can't see what colour eyes you have but whatever colour you have if you take off that colour then you're left with all of your eye being black mm-hmm. and that's what the way my eye is so you take light through the centre of the eye the pupil eye take it through the whole eye so that's um, part missing of my eye, coloboma. Nystagmus is the shaking of the eyes. They involuntarily shake. Now, when you look at my eyes, um, you might not notice it, but if you actually stare at my eyes, then you will notice it. A lot of people who know me on a regular basis, they don't see the shaking anymore. But a complete stranger who I'm just talking to the first time they'll notice it whereas other people who know me they don't notice it anymore because they're they're just used to that and then I suppose glaucoma then is high pressure in the eye so if you imagine blowing into a balloon and the more you blow the bigger the balloon is getting and obviously if there's too much air then the balloon just bursts for me I have to have drops in every night which is extremely important um like the pressure in my eyes really shouldn't be going um, anywhere like if the, it's between 25 and 30 then I'm kind of in trouble like um, the drops are there to take that down um, I have to always have maybe two pairs of sunglasses in my handbag in case I lose a pair um, it can be difficult because I don't look as visually impaired to the extent that I am so when you talk to a person and if your cane is underneath your seat and you ask for help sometimes people will just generally offer the help but other times people will be like well why can't you do it yourself type of thing um and so like things that I can't do I can't drive I'll never be able to drive um and I always have to go and get my eyes checked every six months when I was younger when I was a child it was every three months um I used to absolutely hate going getting it done um, because every time you'd go get it done they'd shine a really bright light into your eye and they'd take a photo like it's like a flash that they take of the eye um, and that would really hurt my eye and then as well as that in getting the glaucoma testing done um, they kind of stick a purple ball touch it against the eyeball I suppose all throughout your life you kind of nearly you just have to you become used to it but even though you're used to it you still don't like it um and I suppose I I did like develop different techniques like there was a stage there where I felt it was very unfair when I was going to hospital it was very kind of open where they just have say two strangers sitting beside one another and have each of them reading the eye chart and I suppose I could never see past the first letter so like my eye chart test was always very very quick so the person like the child who'd be beside me the nurse would say oh we'll give you sweets if you can get to the end of the chart whereas I always thought that was unfair because like I would never be able to get to the end of the chart so um, I then decided to play a technique where I'd always let the person beside me go in first and then they'd call out the chart they'd read out the chart if they've they've good eyesight they'd get down to the very end but if they've bad eyesight like me they might only get halfway down but anyway whatever way they got I'd memorise what they'd say (laughs) and then straight away then I'd want to tell the nurse and then of course I'd read the chart I wouldn't be actually able to see but I'd um, reiterate back what I heard and then then I'd get the lollipop as well but then it totally confused the nurses how 
this child can now see to the end of the track. They kind of copped on after a while what I was doing. When you went to school, and I know you've done a lot of work in the in the area of bullying, so so obviously you it was that that was born out of some of the incidents mm. that you would have um, experienced as a as a child at school. Can you talk a little bit about about that and what, how how maybe um, that that you your disability wasn't accepted by your peers? Yeah, so when I went to school at age eight, well around seven or eight. Um, like I kind of noticed that I was the only person with a white stick. I I noticed that I was the only person using the magnifying glass to read text. Um, and then I suppose kids can be very cruel to anybody who's different. They're not really happy with people who are different. So um, like they used to play games and they used to hit me. And uh, there was a lot of physical bu bullying for me. And I suppose then I started using coping strategies of just not eating and um, not wanting to be at school and that really did have a disastrous effect on me and um, yeah and I suppose at that time I had given my power to the bullies and that mm. is what it really all is about is about a bully being insecure in themselves wanting exert power over another person um, and then the people who are standing around those people being bystanders to the situation. I did a TEDx talk back in 2015 uh, called um, with DCU, a noble call to end bullying and not to be a bystander to it. And I suppose I believe that's where you can show personal leadership by not being a bystander, but it's very difficult to stand up to bullies and then end up with with ending up maybe being bullied yourself so yeah so for me primary school wasn't great and either was secondary school I always kind of felt like um different I always uh, I was a very very different person then to what I am now I was very introverted very nearly quiet shy um and I suppose I went through a period of just telling myself if I change myself then people will accept me and I suppose I spent so many years trying to be somebody else not wanting to be me because I wanted other people to so badly accept me and um, that's exhausting like when you spend that life just constantly wanting to get recognition from other people um, it's exhausting mentally and physically and, and then it's kind of like I suppose a disastrous type of effect it's like nearly like drinking you go out and you get a great high from drinking but the following day you have to come down mm -hmm. and I suppose in terms of trying to get self-acceptance from other people you can have highs they may accept you one day but then the following day it's back to them not accepting you so mm -hmm. um, that's why I suppose I believe the greatest gift in life you can give yourself is self-acceptance because um, you're always going to it's going to be you all throughout your life. You are going to change as a person as you go, go throughout your life. But you should be changing because of changing of you, not because of you're trying to be somebody else for somebody else. Amazing, yeah, absolutely. Um, the, your, your doctoral thesis at the, the Anti-Bullying Research and Resource Centre at Dublin City University, what, can you t tell us a little bit about that? What, what, was, your, what was your topic? Yeah, so um, it was meant to be um, very much uh, law thesis and then it unfortunately, I suppose in one way, ended up um, being an interdisciplinary thesis of education and law. My background is all legal, but it ended up being education and legal. and. Um, nearly even mostly educational so the topic was a secondary school teachers duty of care inside and outside of school regarding bullying so do secondary school teachers owe a duty of care outside of school and inside school and I suppose what I kind of looked at was something like um, themes of empathy and school policy and um, oh what kind of factors drive teachers to want to report bullying not want to report bullying and I suppose really what I just found out of it was that it just sounds so simplistic after doing four years work to just narrow it down into one sentence that we need more empathy in schools and that we need um, like what I found as well that teachers weren't very concerned about law or policy 
Um, so I'm not really sure whether more law or policy it would be effective because teachers were saying to me that they're kind of more concerned what's happening in the corridor rather than wanting to see what's in the in the policy type of thing. But um, it was difficult to hear some teachers say that it's easier to turn a blind eye to bullying because there's too much admin work um, associated with it. So. Yeah, so that's, and I was meant to go to Boston to do, compare the Boston law to Irish law to see there was a law implemented in Boston, an anti-bullying law. There was an Irish girl went over there called Phoebe Prince. She ended up getting bullied. She ended up um, um, committing suicide. And um, like then a, a law came in then on foot of her death. And I was trying to see whether we could apply that law here in Ireland because that law states that if bullying happens outside a school and has an impact inside in school then the school is liable mm. if they don't do anything about it. My thesis was a qualitative thesis so that means interviews only. Yeah. Um, now obviously having a PhD does help me and um, people do talk to me one way when I tell them I'm Sinead Kane. They talk to me another way when I tell them that I have a PhD and that I'm Dr. Sinead Kane. Now, I do find that interesting, um, that mm. they talk, people talk to you in a different way. It's the exact same when I tell people that I'm a solicitor, they talk to you one way, and then you tell them you're a solicitor, they talk to you another way. That's the way society mm. is. But I suppose for me, with my visual impairment, I think one of the blessings of my visual impairment is that I don't judge people on their appearance and we live in a world where everything is judged on your appearance and everything is about instant gratification and that's all it is is instant gratification and we live in a world about artificial intelligence and that is all it is is artificial we're losing the human connection um, and for me I don't judge people based on their appearance because I can't fully see their full appearance so I kind of judge people based on their personality based on their tone of voice and I think that if more people went by the personality of the person then um, and a person's experience like I notice there a lot of people just have no time for old people or elderly people and like I say it myself like sometimes it can be frustrating dealing with an elderly person if they're continuously saying what 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 I can't hear you but like we need to kind of appreciate that an elderly person has lived a life and we can learn a lot from an elderly person sometimes I believe having a PhD and having a book um, you can learn stuff from a book but you can also learn a lot more from a person who's actually lived a certain experience yeah absolutely totally um I'm going to be getting to the running in a minute because I know people will be interested in and maybe a lot of people have become aware of you over the last couple of years in that, that direction. But before we leave the bullying, it seems like there's the ubiquity of and the kind of the behind closed doors nature of things like um, Facebook and WhatsApp and Snapchat and various things online and cyberbullying over the last few years. What, what do you think the status quo is now in terms of bullying? Are we any closer? Is it getting worse? Are we any closer to eradicating it or is it getting worse? So what's, your, what's your point of view there? Um, like I suppose uh, there's always helpful strategies happening to try and eradicate it I don't know will you actually even ever eradicate it I'd be very surprised if it ever gets eradicated because human nature encompasses aggression and bullying kind of stems from aggression um, so I don't know will you ever eradicate it um, I think as society changes the different forms of bullying will change so in the past it used to be very much maybe physical it has now kind of changed to cyber I think it'll probably change again in the future um, like and as well as that everybody has this concept of bullying as bullying in school but people don't have the concept about bullying in nursing homes or people mm. don't have the concept of sibling bullying mm. bullying within within the home and how that actually affects a child as well um, so like I think kind of the the I don't have the statistic off the top of my head because I haven't done any research on bullying in over a year. I finished my PhD mm. last um, January and I haven't really kept up with it. But as far as I'm aware, it's about 30% like um, um, the bullying statistic. So 30% of people have experienced bullying? 
um, yeah, around that. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and do do people do people who are bullied are they often people who then do bullying? Do yeah, research has shown that. Mm. And then I suppose like even in the workplace, you have to you have bullying, and it can be very difficult to deal with workplace or to deal with workplace bullying if the person who's bullying you is your manager. So like yeah. if you want to complain. Um, to your manager about bullying but it's your manager who's bullying you what do you do then so I suppose every company has to have um, an anti-bullying policy normally it would come under their health and safety umbrella um, and in, in normally in companies you would have a formal um, uh, procedure and an informal procedure yeah. um, to follow so yeah. Again, like I suppose those are the dynamics in workplaces that can make bullying hard um, and like the, the types of bullying, say the exclusion from social events, uh, I suppose the whispering, um, mm. uh, etc. So yeah, and, and well, like my own exper- experience or like the, the, the little bit of experience I have in terms of workplace um, is not a, not in a bullying perspective because thankfully I don't mm. think I ever experienced yeah. kind of either side of that in in the workplace. Um, but I, I do feel strongly that um, management is a really really difficult thing, and mm-hmm. and and we we don't get enough training. We, we, you get somebody who's really good at maybe a particular task, and then they get a promotion to become a manager in that task. And they don't, but don't, a lot of kids don't get the training to become a manager. They just got the promotion because they have experience or skill. Mm. In a particular area. Yeah, well, I think that when economics comes into it Mm. and that businesses are there to form profit, that's where bullying can kind of stem from because results has to be got and profits has to be made. So um, it's tied to the bottom line, then then you see the progress. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. so I want to talk about running. Um, in 2015, you took part in the Volcano Marathon, I think. It's the, the highest, um, not, not only the, the, the highest altitude, uh, highest altitude desert marathon in the world. Um, and a couple of years later, you did the World Marathon Challenge, seven marathons in seven days on seven continents. Um, we'll get into the World Marathon Challenge in a second, but you, you, I read that you weren't always a runner. It's not, it's not something you always did growing up. Like, when did you take up running or why did, why, so why did like you take that decision? When I was growing up, like I was always left on the P bench in school. I was oh, always yeah. left sitting on the P bench. I was ne- Because of my disability, nobody wanted to pick me for yeah. the team. Um, and I suppose my uh, even PE teacher wasn't encouraging me at all either to do PE. And um, so then my pri- primary years, secondary years, and in my 20s, never ever doing sport. Now I would have went to the gym some of the time, but like it was very kind of aimlessly in the gym. I would have been on the bicycle and maybe on that for five minutes and then got bored and then got off and then maybe got on the skier for seven minutes and then got bored and then got off. There was nothing about pace, time, heart rate, or any kind of structure or focused as into why I was going to the gym. I just went there. When I got off bored, got off like and kind of. So <clears throat> that was in maybe my twenties, and then uh, for my ter- around my thirtieth birthday, um, in March twenty twelve, I was asked to do ten k for Child Vision, um, their charity for blind vision impaired children. Didn't know what a ten k was. Automatically said yes because I suppose I believe that you have to give back in life um, rather than always taking and I suppose there's a lot of life lessons to be learned about gratitude and also about helping others and um, I suppose I wanted to help others and then I set myself the task of doing raising 2,000 euros for child vision and doing it under an hour the women's mini marathon in June 2012 and I achieved those targets I did it in 55 minutes and I did it. I got the two thousand euros for them, and then on from that. Then I suppose my confidence grew, and then I was out of running for a year around twenty thirteen because I couldn't find a guide runner. And then in twenty fourteen, I did my first. I found a guide runner in twenty fourteen. I did my first half marathon in June twenty fourteen. Then that summer, I decided I wanted to do the full marathon because I felt that the mar- half marathon was too easy. And then um, in the G- July 2014, I 
was looking for a guide runner and nobody came forward and I suppose I was very disappointed because like I at that time then I was doing it for Childline because I'd done by that stage I'd done five years voluntary work with Childline which is answering the phones to children and so I was kind of saying like how much more sympathy do you need a blind girl wanting to do a marathon to raise funds for Childline for a children's charity so nobody came forward so I put out um, a tweet because the guy who was to do the half who did the half marathon with me that guide runner he wasn't available for the full marathon so that's why I couldn't have him so and he was away that summer so I couldn't be training with him so I put out this tweet in July 2014 and any kind of fitness I built up for the half marathon I lost that during July because I wasn't running in July because I had no guide runner see a lot of people take for granted just throwing on their shoes and going out running and running anywhere whereas I don't have that luxury I'm confined to certain places where I can train either the gym or the track following the white line or um, maybe a certain stretch of road that has grass that I can just follow grass so um, so I'm very very confined as to where I can train if I don't have a guide runner and um, yeah so I put out the tweet and say no well no guide runner no marathon for Chiline, no funds to be raised and then um, somebody, somebody came forward and he said I'll run with you but I'm based in Dublin he, he was based in Dublin I was based in Cork and so I travelled up on the train for three hours to do a two hour run with him to then travel back down the train for three hours again so that was like six hours on the train just to do a two hour run so like a lot of people really really need to I suppose it annoys me when fully sighted people like complain about not being able about or having to do a 5k and I kind of feel like well if I had your full sight I'd be out there looking at the beauty just even looking at nature and kind of trying to appreciate it because a lot of people think about visual impairment as in oh that affects you you were born with it it's genetics but like anybody can go visually impaired through accident or illness like any person can maybe be visually impaired tomorrow yeah. um and then then when you had your opportunity to be outside experiencing nature looking at the beauty around you and then you don't have that anymore so um <clears throat> so that kind of frustrates me and annoys me a bit about people um so anyway this guide runner came forward i was up and down to dublin and i kind of wanted to get um value out of this guide runner so like my uh, like longest run was 13.1 half marathon mm. distance so in the august the beginning of august I went for like a 20 minute run with him just to see what way he was on the guiding like left right up down was he good because no point trying to run with him if he wasn't really a good guide and then he seemed to go okay and then I kind of said okay well what I'll do now is I'll ask this guy to be kind of doing an 18 mile run so he kind of said to me well what's your longest distance and I kind of said 13 and a bit so I kind of made out that my I was kind of around 15 16 miles whereas like I then went straight into 18 mile run with him which obviously was kind of stupid because you're meant to kind of increase by 10% but I wanted value out of him from after travelling up so then each weekend when I travel up and do the run on the Sunday with him like each weekend I was doing 18 miles run with him and obviously that was just too much for me because I hadn't increased gradually which I'm meant to do so by the end of August anyway I basically had banjaxed my left knee and um, and at the beginning of September I just couldn't run because on the last day of running with him in August I had it in my head we'd done an 18 mile run and then I was going to do a 10 mile run with him the following day and I had all this planned out in my head waited around Dublin all on the Monday until he finished work on the Monday evening met him and then tried to go for a run and I couldn't even run 100 metres and I was so annoyed because I'd waited around all day so I was really trying to force myself to get this 10 mile run done couldn't get it done and um, so then I was out of running for three weeks decided okay I had to be adaptable went swimming aqua jogging to try and keep up my fitness and then that guy who I was running with said oh I know who I could introduce you to because I was getting really worried being out of running for three weeks and like I basically only had August's training done 
for this marathon that I was doing in four weeks time so I was kind of starting to panic a bit and so he said I'll introduce you to a guy who'll be able to fix your knee or he'll know somebody who can fix your knee which was John O'Regan so I met John at the beginning of the October and I said look my knee is banjaxed I need you to help me and he said oh well I don't fix knees uh, I'm only a run coach and um, so he said I, I'll try and put you in touch with somebody who I think knows about physiotherapy or what to do and and then from a running coach point of view I I was saying to him like oh what do you think about me doing this Dublin marathon and he kind of said well I don't think you should do it so he was advising me out of it and then I kind of said well you obviously haven't researched me because when people tell me not to do things I do them um, and so then he kind of said okay well head off and do it um, and then uh, he said have you any more questions and this will just show you now in October 2014 how naive I was about running like in October 2014 before doing the Mar Dublin Marathon like my longest distance was a half marathon so in the October 2014 I said um, look if it's raining on the day of the marathon will they cancel the marathon because I don't want to travel up from Cork up to Dublin and hear that the marathon is cancelled so John kind of looked at me like I had four heads and kind of and then I felt embarrassed but I still wanted the answer the question so he then was like thinking is she joking saying this and then he realised that I was actually being serious so then he kind of said well Sinead it's like this firstly they organise the marathon straight away once in it, once that marathon finishes. So it's like a year's work goes into it. Secondly, at that time there was about 15,000 people running it. So you're disappointing 15,000 people. And then thirdly, you live in a country where it all the time rains. So no, they won't cancel the marathon. So basically that was my level of understanding about running and about marathons in, in that period of time. So did the marathon. Uh, ended up doing it with a guide runner and that guide runner then during it basically I never foresaw what to do if I'm stronger than the guide runner so I ended up being stronger than the guide runner and at mile 24 or so I said to the guide runner because I had it in my head that I just want to do this in four hours I don't know why I picked four hours but I just wanted to do it in four hours and I'm a very kind of focused person like if I set myself a target I really want to get it so kind of a bit of competitiveness whether it's like in an academic life or the sport in life that type of person I am so I set the target of the four hours at 24 miles I knew that if I kept on the type of pace I was doing that I wasn't going to get the four hours so then um, I said to the guide runner oh like we have to up the pace and he said well I can't if you want to up the pace off with you so I said <laughs> okay so I let go of the band and I ran forward and I kind of said to myself oh god what am I going to do now like because there's herds of people coming from behind me so I have to keep moving because otherwise I'm going to get trampled on uh, the pavement or the road was all uneven so I didn't want to be running by myself so as I said I go by colours so I saw a person in a white t-shirt I asked him this was around mile 25 now and I asked him oh like look lost my guide runner can you guide me to the end this white t-shirt person disappeared so obviously he didn't want to do it um, which is kind of understandable because obviously if you're suffering yourself the last thing you want to be doing is trying to guide a visually impaired person and then I saw another guy in a blue t-shirt and I asked him and he I ended up running with him and then he said quick 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 it's 3.59 on the clock but I started crying because I said to myself right well I haven't done it so because I came over the line and the two they add two they give the visually impaired two minutes at the beginning at head start so that to avoid the crushing of the crowd but those two minutes get added on at the end so even though I came in in 3.59 actually the two minutes then um, was 4.01 like mm -hmm. so for me then I was devastated I was never ever doing running again and then that year John um, I'd only known him at about three weeks at that stage he was pacing in the marathon that year he was either doing was it three hours or three hours ten so he came over to me and he said, where's your guide runner, where's your guide runner? And how'd your marathon go and all of this? And like, because I did 401, like one minute over, I was like, just so annoyed. And I, like, I barely knew John, but I said like, look, just leave me alone. Don't talk to me. 
I don't want to talk to you. I don't know you. I just want to be by myself. So I was very, very short with him. He was like, what's wrong with you? What's wrong? And I just said, well, basically, I've not completed my task. I want to do the four hours and all of this. And then I said to him, I don't even feel like I've run a marathon. Now, I think he like, I think he thought I was being very arrogant. Um, but like then, unknown to me, he was observing my body language, walking up and down steps, and he could see that I wasn't in any type of a pain going up and down steps. So then he kind of said, oh, I think your talent lies in ultra running. And I kind of said, well, what the hell is ultra running? And he said, it's any distance beyond a marathon distance. And then I said, oh, well, that's great. But um, who's going to do this ultra running with me? And he said, oh, I'll do it with you. And I said, OK, well, put your money where your mouth is and do a race with me and and on that start line our finish line at the Dublin Marathon he said well there is a race in February um, and I'll talk to you more about it and then we started training was it in November or December that year for that 50k that I did in February we did the 50k I did it in a good time and then that was February 2015 and then John said to me do you want to go back to where your running all began with the women's mini marathon and I said yes and then he tried to get into women's mini marathon they wouldn't allow him in because of his gender then there was this big huge social media um oh out out or task mm. or whatever you want to say um and basically the women's mini marathon changed their policy and allowed him in and um, it wasn't an exception that was made. It was an actual policy change. And I was glad that it was a policy change that said we now allow male assistants as opposed to male guide runners. Because a girl with cystic fibrosis emailed me and said, oh, thanks so much, Nave, for getting the policy change because I wanted my dad pushing me in my wheelchair last year, but they wouldn't allow him in. Whereas now, because it says male assistants, he can push me in the wheelchair. Mm, mm. So then um, that was in June 2015 that I did the women's mini marathon, got the policy changed. And I suppose I do things not only for me, but I do it for others. Um, and that's why I was proud of that because it affects others. I don't want to just be doing things for me. And then John said, oh, in the June, what about doing a 12-hour race? And I said, okay, well, do 12-hour races exist? And then he said, yeah, I've won a few 24-hour races. So then when he said he's won 24-hour races, a 12-hour race kind of sounded short. <laughs> and my longest race, longest run at that point was 4 hours, 52 minutes. And then he said, look, I think you should go to Belfast and I think you can beat the track record. So I was like, what are you going on about beating track record and doing 12-hour race? But anyway, he was right. I went to Belfast. I did the 12-hour um, race and he said to me like look when you go up there everybody would be like looking at your disability basically they would probably feel sorry for you and then I said well nobody's going to feel sorry for me and all of this and I kind of had an argument with him about that and then um, I ended up coming second and myself and the girl who came first Amy Masner who came first and I came second we both beat the track record which I suppose some people would see as a soft record it was 105 kilometres um, Amy, I think in that race did about 112, and I did 109.6 or something. Mm. And then the year later, then I did the 12-hour race again, and I came second again. And I was like saying, okay, second now it's becoming a bit boring. Um, two years in a row, and then in was it and another year then was it 2017 or something or 28? Oh yeah, 2018. This year I did the 12-hour race again. And I'm after coming second female again. So I'm after coming in this 12 hour track race or 12 hour race up in Belfast. I'm after coming second female three times. So, um, that, that's, that, that, that's, that's one box that I'm sure you, you I'm sure you're intent on ticking at some point oh, down yeah. the line. And uh, but uh, if so, that was over the last couple of years, the 12 hour races. Um, the, the other or one of the other, uh, I won't say the other, one of the other extreme ultra um, events that you've taken part in is the, the World Marathon Challenge. Those seven marathons that started in, 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 in 2017, seven marathons in seven days, first one in Antarctica, then you went on to Punta Arenas in Chile, in Miami, Madrid, Marrakesh in Morocco, Dubai and Sydney in the space of seven days. Um, seven days putting your body through a combination of this physical exertion, uh, long haul travel, 
with a visual impairment disability um most of us will not be even be able to imagine anything like that what 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 were your first of all did, did you think you were ever think you were crazy to do it um, well you do have to be a bit ocd to do ty- <laughs> these type of things like um yeah so yeah all the time i said to myself i'm crazy to be doing this but then other kind of times i kind of actually blocked out a bit of the extremes so I just kept telling myself I'll be able to do this this will be fine sure I do four hour training runs um, for a four hour run to me doing a marathon in four hours is like a training run to me so all I kept saying to myself is all you have to do is a four hour marathon each day and it's just a training run so I just simplified it down in my head like that and then but then I kind of blocked out the factors of okay well you'll be doing this in minus 30 or you'll be doing this in plus 38 in Dubai so if I had have actually been thinking about those then it wouldn't have sounded as easy but as well as that a lot of people think of the World Marathon Challenge as really really hard but and I don't want to sound arrogant by saying this but it wasn't as hard as what everybody thinks it, it was and the reason why I say that is because with the World Marathon Challenge there was a finish line and with my disability there's no finish line and like for me on a daily basis dealing with small mundane things on a daily basis living with that every single day is more difficult than doing a week challenge and like for me I've lived a life of being uncomfortable so a lot of people say oh that's really extreme uncomfortable but I've lived my life uncomfortable. So I'm comfortable with mm. being uncomfortable. Yeah. And But a lot of people aren't comfortable with being uncomfortable because they spend their life being comfortable. Because they're in their comfortable car with leather seats, heated seats, or um, just everybody's um, day is just made so convenient and more comfortable for everybody. But it's true that hardship that you learn and grow about yourself. Um, And I suppose, like, um, in total, the race included 59 hours of flight time, 43,500 kilometres of flight distance, and 295 kilometres of running. Getting to the race starting point in Punterinas required 27 hours of travel and a distance of 14,359 kilometres. Returning home was a distance of 19,200 kilometres from Sydney to Dublin via Abu Dhabi with a travel time of 24 hours. Temperatures during the challenge varied from a low of minus 30 in Antarctica to plus 34 in Dubai with most locations above 20. Um, by the fifth day, my, my feet were so badly swollen that you could hear the fluid shaking in my feet um, and you couldn't even feel where my ankle bone was um, because I got blisters on the first day in Antarctica and like I never ever get blisters three miles into any marathon but in my first marathon in Antarctica because I'm not be- I very very sensitive feet because I'm not being used to wearing wool socks they're the type of socks I was wearing um, because I'm not being used to wearing them they obviously cause friction a lot of friction on my feet but I was wearing them to try and protect them from getting any bit of a frostbite or whatever but they ended up causing blisters on my feet so by three miles I started to feel the hot spot and then by six miles the 10k they in an first race they were quite bad and the guide runner john made me stop because he said like you have to remember that you have another six marathons after this six days after this if you do not stop now like you're not going to be able to do your race tomorrow so i absolutely hate stopping in a race even if i'm doing a 12 hour race or a 24 hour race and one of my guide runners says to me oh i need to stop to go to the toilet and if they need to stop right but I don't 
and I'm in the competitive spirit, I don't want them to stop to go to the toilet. I'll be saying, are you sure you need to go to the toilet? I don't think you need to go to the toilet. Um, you need to have a bit more of a man up and <laughs> just basically hold your toilet. So um, so that I can try and uh, keep my race position. But anyway, so the point being, I hate stopping and um, John made me stop to get my blisters treated. And I suppose from that first day by the fifth day, then they were just absolutely wrecked. And um, of course, John then ended up with no blistered feet. He didn't even get a patch of redness on his feet. I suppose myself and John were very different types of athletes. Um, he's a lot stronger than me. He's uh, never gets blisters. Um, he's won a lot of races. Um, going to Antarctica wasn't a big deal for him because he'd already been to Antarctica before. He didn't have to do the World Marathon Challenge because he had already run on the seven continents before. He's already been to the North Pole. He's been he's done the Martin de Saab race. Um, he was been to Machu Picchu um, race. Like so, he's a far experienced runner than me. And I suppose in a kind of way that kind of like not annoys me, but he has to be a lot stronger than me, right? So if I'm running outside of my comfort zone at a higher pace than what I want to be, I might start puffing and panting. But he's just like trotting along like he can have a full conversation then, but I'd be puffing and panting. So that kind of knowing then that I'm suffering, but he's not suffering, that kind of nearly annoys me kind of a bit. So, um, yeah, but sure, it has to be that way because you can't have a guide runner who's suffering if you're s as well because then they can't fully concentrate like so um, the task anyway when we went over the start line in Antarctica was that once you start over the start line then the seven day time limit started and you had to have it completed like 168 hours um, and I did it in total I think my time was 153 hours 49 minutes and 18 seconds so I had a lot of time to spare actually by the time I got to Sydney um, to do the last marathon we had 19 hours to spare so for me to actually I knew before I even done my last marathon that I was getting the record anyway yeah. because I had 19 hours complete a marathon and sure you could walk that so I kind of said right well I walk this um but then like John was kind of saying well have a small bit of self-respect for yourself and maybe actually try and run it because you are able to run it so um so I I, I ran it and I don't know that marathon I think I did uh what did I do in that marathon um I think I was four hours um maybe 40 minutes or something in that yeah, marathon in the last one and yeah of, of those seven days, what was it? You mentioned kind of day five was really, really difficult. Yeah, because the course wasn't. Yeah. Well, my feet by that stage was just really, mm. really sore. And like, it was to the point where girls worry about fitting into their dresses. I was worrying about will I actually fit into my runners? Mm. That's how bad it mm. was. Um, and um, the pain was excruciating. And I suppose the course didn't suit me. There was a lot of tr palm trees on the centre of the ground, which meant that myself and John had to run single file, which meant then that we weren't keeping pace. Other runners were passing us. Um, so we couldn't run side by side. So it's very mentally difficult knowing that a lot of runners are passing you. And like th this type of course was a course where it was a, like a two kilometre loop so you had to keep going around a certain section for, I don't know, was it 10 or 15 times to, it was like an 800 metre section where all these trees were. So every time I came to that section, I kept getting slower and slower because the concentration was going, the mental was going because other runners are passing me out. And I suppose I was doing this World Marathon Challenge to prove that people with disabilities can do things. Whereas in that race, I was very much finding that my disability was impacting on me and that... Um, and I was kind of questioning, okay, well, really, can I actually do this? Because the disability is really being impacted in this race. And yeah. then as well as that, myself and John had a fight in during the race because I kicked 
he says it was a stone I say it was rock but whether it's a stone or rock either way it really really hurt whatever the hell I kicked and um, then I just said right I'm out I'm not doing no more marathons I just I just can't do this I can't do no two more marathons I can't run with you I can't my feet are too sore so I ripped off my race belt and I was out and then he beckoned over a sports psychologist that person talked to me and then that person said okay like come on try and get back into the race and I said sure it doesn't matter now John is gone now uh, I use a lot of colourful language with him he's gone and then they um John appeared out of nowhere from behind and I, I kind of was like well, you listened to my conversation the whole time and then he said like look I believed in your goal from day one and I want to help you achieve this goal and so it just the life lesson to be learned from that is that stick with people who believe in your goal and not everybody a lot of people will say they believe in your goal but when it, the really tough time comes that will prove who does really believe in your goal and I suppose I felt privileged then that he believed in my goal even though I was in very bad mood with him that day and then he got back into the race the race was very very silent between the two of us he was just doing as John would say when we're competing that it's about communication not conversation um, so like we're not talking about Carnation Street when we're running we're talking about okay ramp in 50 get ready um, or you need to go left type of thing um, and he uses the littlest possible amount of words now another life lesson to be learned is some days we have a bad day the next day can be really really good the next day for me in Dubai was really really good I was running along a boardwalk um, and there was no obstacles in our way and I suppose in that race then I ended up coming joined first in that race so it just proves that because I felt I went out there and I said okay I'm leaving everything out here now because I've a lot to prove to myself to other race competitors to my family back home to John everybody that okay that when visioning when people with disabilities have an equal playing field and that was an equal playing field when the, no obstacles on the board boardwalk down by the beach um, that like I was going to succeed better than the day before and so in that race I came joint first and for me that like a lot of people ask me which was my favourite and for me I suppose Antarctica was one of my favourites because it's a special place that not many people get to go there there's 24 hours of light in Antarctica in the January um, I think that's something special it's a place where um, nobody ha has ever been killed by war like there's so many wars in the world that it's 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 very unique that there's no war in Antarctica and um, yeah so mm. I suppose that's uh, something unique about it and mm. um, and then the sixth race the Dubai race where I won that was special for me because I'd never won a race and um, yeah and then I suppose like not a lot of people talk about say depression in athletes or anxiety or sadness or upset now myself and John had prepared for this world marathon challenge everybody sees the record now they see me getting the record but they don't think about okay the teamwork that's involved so I wouldn't have gotten that record if it wasn't for John and um, a lot of people say John should be getting the record for himself for the amount of patience that he has to deal with and putting up with me um, so like you have to factor in that that it is one person gets a record but it actually really is a team helping you the next thing is that a lot of people see whether you win or lose they don't see the 10,000 hours of hard work that has to go in um, to it so it wasn't like that myself and John just showed up in January 2017 to do the World Marathon Challenge we were preparing for that since January 2016 even when we kept getting re rejection of sponsorship every time a person said oh no we can't give you sponsorship we can't give you we kept persevering on that's what I suppose defines, differs us from other people some people maybe after the 20th rejection will give up whereas myself and John didn't we kept um, I suppose going on so you have to have that self-determination motivation mm -hmm. and perseverance um, 
And then I was, because of spending a full year trying to get on the World Marathon Challenge, um, I suppose I wasn't expecting for sadness about the end of the event to happen so quickly. And I was expecting it maybe to happen a week after I come back from the World Marathon Challenge or maybe a month after I come back. But it actually happened straight away when I crossed over the finish line in Sydney. So like John, there's a photo there, I don't know, online or something and I'm sitting on a wall in Sydney and my head is down and my head is in my hands. And I suppose it's a photo that looks of me very tired after the World Marathon Challenge, after completing the last marathon. But actually, in that picture, my head is bent down because I'm actually quite upset. And for me, having crossed the finish line meant that the challenge was now over. And had there been an eight continent and an eight marathon, I would have done it because I suppose it was like a wedding and it was like the anti-climax, the wedding is now over and you've nothing really to prepare for Mm. type of thing. Um, And so I actually didn't want to come home because for me, coming home meant that the the, the trip was over. Um, and I suppose that you have to then put perspective into it and learn that life always changes, that as much as you enjoy a certain situation or a certain challenge, that life changes. And that's what life is about, drawing from the experience. And John was trying to help me realise, okay, it's not that this... Uh, that this is over, this is only the beginning, so, and I suppose, like, in a way, he was right, like, it was the next chapter, because then I came back, and since I come back from the World Marathon Challenge, I've just got into a career of speaking, now, I was doing a lot of speaking before I went on the World Marathon Challenge, but speaking wasn't my full-time job, speaking is my full-time job now, so I speak to a lot of national companies in Ireland, and international companies, like, I recently I was in Boston and I was in Sweden. Next month I go to um, abroad again in um, in January and February. So I want to try and do more work abroad. So again, like John had said, it's only the beginning. So again, it's about your perception of life, your self-talk that goes on in your head and about how adaptable you are to change mm. and how much agility you have, what speed you have to adapt to change. I have a couple more questions uh, to, before we wrap up. Mm-hmm. It's been amazing talking to you. Um, we talked, you talked a little bit about your immediate focus for the foreseeable future. Like, what, what's the grand, do you have a grand vision or a plan or ambition at this stage that you can talk about for year three years ten years down the line what's what's in the future Um, for Sinead Kane well I suppose like I see myself in a leadership position changing policy utilizing my legal skills um and having a platform and a voice I believe every single individual has a voice I'm not quite sure what leadership position I see myself in um my like a lot of people go into a job in the past and they stay in that job for 40 years. My career has changed. I have been, um, like, I was a solicitor, a mediator, a PhD researcher, um, athlete, speaker, and maybe in three years' time, I don't know what other title I'll have, but I know that it's good to maybe keep changing mm. and not just be defined by one thing. Again, I'm not just defined by my disability. So I want to make change. I'm using my speaking as a platform and a springboard to spring me on to something else. What that something else is yet, I don't know. In terms of my running, I do know what I want. I would like to attempt the 24-hour treadmill record. I have the 12-hour treadmill record that I got last February. I would like to attempt the 24-hour treadmill record. Um, and then there's other adventure races abroad that I'd like to do, but I have to uh, negotiate with different companies at the moment in terms of sponsorship, try and get people on board to sponsor me for the different. And the reason why I want to do those races is because it brings awareness of a person with a disability doing a sporting event. And then 
IMAS to companies to talk about that and then through talking about that then I can talk about issues of diversity, inclusion, equality. So it's given me a platform to talk about other issues that I'm passionate about. So like for me, my running is the vehicle to get speaking gigs that in turn allows me to speak about issues I'm passionate about. Yes, yes. Um, and very, 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 very best to look with, with all that. And I know we'll be following um, from afar. Um, in, in one talk I watched you, just a couple more questions yeah. to wrap up. Um, in, in one talk I watched you give uh, like three tips for life. It was a know, know the reason why you want to succeed, uh, and to know who your role model is, and mm -hmm. that every single person can demonstrate um, personal leadership. And mm -hmm. um, to take those three in turn, um, what, what's, what's your why, first of all? Um, I think the reason why I want to succeed is because I want to um, know that I'm much more than my disability. And to, um, I suppose I want to um, inspire others. I want to push my own physical and mental boundaries to see how far I can push myself. So there are some of my reasons why. I also have other very personal reasons within me that's very personal to me that only me knows them. Um, I'll never disclose them to my family, to my uh, any any friends or any people. I want to keep them for me, and they're kind of like the secrets that actually will drive me. Um, I don't believe that you should reveal everything about yourself to er every person. I, I I do believe that you can hold back. Um, and not tell everything about yourself. Yeah. So there is, I think that you have to have, well, it works for me anyway. I don't know what works for other people, but it works for me having one m motivation that nobody knows about, only me. Interesting, yeah, yeah. Um, role models, do you, do you um, have a single role, role model? Well, role models for me are unsung heroes who don't get recognition. So um, people who are maybe like penny dinners in Cork who are behind the scenes doing the wash up of the plates or um, Maureen Forrest who set up the Hope Foundation um, so it'd be very easy for me to just throw out big people's names to you here and now but for me it's more the unsung heroes my sister would be a hero to me watching her um, do tasks on a daily basis um, so yeah so the unsung heroes yeah. um, I think it's that those people help me more than say superstar type Absolutely. people yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, personal leadership you said that every single person can demonstrate personal leadership what, what, yeah. what, in a nutshell what, what, how, how can people listen to this be well, better personal leaders well I think that every time you have a conversation with a person that you have the potential to influence that person. So through your values, through your beliefs, through the way you, um, like say for example, personal leadership as well, I believe is about getting out of your comfort zone. So like for you, it might be, but say for example, if you'd never done a 5K mm. run, right? Um, for you to do a 5K run, that would be demonstrating personal leadership because you're out of your comfort zone. And then unknown to you then, you're sh demonstrating about fitness, about health. And then whether you realize it or not, those around you, say your family members who might not be into exercise, they'll watch and observe and see how you're getting into fitness. So then they might then follow you. So I think sometimes personal leadership as well comes down to courage and standing up for an issue or standing up to something within yourself and then courage has a ripple effect once one person demonstrates it the ripple effect then it gives i suppose hope to others that they can do it indeed indeed so um, to me that's what personal leadership is no it's good um, i'm going to take that um the last question uh, one of the things about this podcast is that, that I'd, I'd like people to think um, a little bit differently about happiness to perhaps redefine happiness not as something that's out there that we need to pursue but something that's kind of within us all once we know where to look or what to look for um, do you think about happiness and what might your definition of happiness be I suppose happiness for me is 
self-love, being, being able to be acknowledged, to be grateful for things and happiness as well. Like, I suppose, example, I always thought that I'd be happy when I'd be working as a solicitor on South Mall on Cork. I just had this big perceived idea. I made it so big in my head that I thought, okay, that's it. And then when I actually, and it took a very long time to get to become a solicitor because of discrimination in terms of applying for jobs and not getting jobs. And I had to go a long rooted way, not um, not as easy as a normal person. But when I got a solicitor job on South Mallon Cork, I was like, is this it? And I had made it up so big in my head that actually when I got it, then it wasn't as great as what I thought it was going to be. And so for me, happiness is living in the moment, living in the present, because none of us know if we have tomorrow. Mm. Like a very, very good friend of mine died back in 2016. And I just, I suppose I'm still in shock. I still can't, like some of the time I say to myself, oh, I'll ring this person to tell her something. And then... I realise actually that person isn't here now. So that's how much of a shock it came to me. Um, so like we have to just, and it's just so, um, you never know what you have until it's gone. And it's the same with your eyesight. Like people take it for granted. So not taking things for granted, etc. Um, so again, to me, happiness is being content with the small things. Powerful stuff. Um, I want to acknowledge you for everything you've overcome, everything you've achieved. Um, it's been amazing talking to you for, for the last um, hour or so. Um, if anyone wants to follow you, Sinead, or find out more about you, yeah. where can they do that? Um, so it's at blindrunner777 on Twitter. On the Instagram, it's at kaneshnead777. And then also on Twitter, it's at kaneshnead. Thank you so much, Sinead. Thank you.